We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 14 is where we find ourselves. So if you'll turn to the third book of the New Testament, chapter 14, we'll begin reading that verse 25. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we will get you a Bible so you can read the text with us, study God's Word together. All right. Luke chapter 14. Coming to the end of the chapter, remember that the chapter opens up with Jesus accepting this invitation to have dinner with the ruler of the Pharisee. Jesus is in that area of Judea. Remember, he's left Judea, uh, Galilee up north where he spent most of his earthly ministry for the last time. He is making his way to Jerusalem eventually, only a month, couple months away from this point here in Luke chapter 14. So the things that he is saying, he's very pointed, he's very honest, he's very direct. So as he gets invited to this ruler of a Pharisee, a ruler would mean that he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin Council. And as I've mentioned in our previous studies, it's only going to be a few months from this time that Jesus is going to be bound up in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going to be taken across the Kidron Valley to Caiaphas' house where that council, the Jewish Supreme Court, is going to condemn him to death. And they're going to begin to beat him. And Jesus, knowing that, would accept the invitation to this ruler's house. And Jesus would begin to address their hypocrisy. As the Pharisee and his religious buddies, they were watching him, trying to find a reason to accuse him. And he would end up healing a man that they had placed in front of him who had this dreadful disease, dropsy, who was hurting, who was about ready to die. And those religious leaders, they didn't care about that man. They only cared about catching Jesus and, and violating their traditions. And Jesus would address that most specifically, as we saw. And he would say to them, which one of you would pull out an animal, a donkey out of a pit on the Sabbath? You would do that, but you would not show compassion or, or mercy to a man who is sick, who is dying. And Jesus ended up healing that man and sent that man home. The law did not forbid showing compassion and mercy on a Sabbath. And then Jesus would then turn to the guests as he's watching them, trying to get the best seats at that feast, trying to set up front, trying to be recognized, trying to, you know, be of importance. And Jesus would give them a parable. He would tell them that they are to humble themselves and take the lowest place for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the way of the kingdom. And then Jesus addressed, as we saw in the chapter progressing through it, that he would address the host of that dinner who invited the important people and, and, and the host who had a, a wrong motive for hospitality. He wanted to be noticed. He wanted uh, to be seen uh, in favor of others. He was trying to buy that recognition. So when they had a feast, that he would be invited. He would be able to sit up front. And Jesus said that what you are to do is you are to invite 
invite the poor, the lame. You are to invite the blind. And you'll be rewarded in the resurrection of the just. And then last week, we saw that Jesus, uh, as he would address um, the man who interrupted him and the people that were there at that dinner, that man said, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Speaking of the resurrection of the just, we're going to eat bread. And those religious leaders presuming on their, their salvation, here Jesus would tell a parable of a great supper, that those who are invited to that great supper or feast ending up having excuses why they couldn't come to the supper when all things were ready. So the master said to the servant, go out and invite the poor, the blind, the lame. Go out into the highways. Go out into the byways and invite them to come for all things are now ready and compel them to come that my house may be full. And just as those religious leaders were making excuses not to come to Jesus, there are people today that will make all kinds of excuses not to submit their lives to Jesus Christ, not realizing there's a great feast that's going to happen, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I can't wait for that day. And I hope you have that same mindset and heart that one day we're going to be all together and we're going to have dinner together. Isn't that going to be a wonderful day? That's our future. And the scripture talks about that most specifically. And so we want to go out and we want to invite those who are spiritually poor and spiritually blind, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to give the gospel. We want to invite them to that great supper. So all these things that we've talked about, and now as we pick up our text, again in Luke chapter 14 at verse 25, now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, when you initially read this, you might kind of winch a little bit. It kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it? What do you mean hate father and mother and wife in your own life? It cuts to read this, and yet the chapter is going to end with Jesus saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. And certainly, we want to hear from the Lord this morning, don't we? We want to take this, and we want to consider it. We want to uh, take the things that Jesus is going to tell us and have it worked into our hearts. We know that he has something very important to say to us through these words as we end the chapter. And so Jesus leaving the house of that Pharisee, great multitudes are with him, Dr. Luke writes in verse 25. And he knows that people are following him for various reasons. Jesus, realized this, was never impressed with the multitudes. His message wasn't just so he can get more people. Matter of fact, we saw up in the Galilee region that there was great multitudes to where they were ready to crown him as king only because they wanted a material you know, king, one who's going to bring healing and feed them. Hey, he's fed the 5,000. He's healing us of every kind of sickness, disease. We'll never go hungry again. We'll never be sick again. But yet when it came to Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life and come and eat of me and drink of me, the crowds, as John chapter 6 tells us, began to leave him. And Jesus, he's being, again, honest here at this point in his ministry, and he's talking about discipleship. But he was never impressed with the multitudes. He never gave a message just to try to get more people. 
It's so different than what you see so often in the church today. You read the church growth magazines and the seminars that are given and the conferences that are available and all of this. It's what you can do to get more people. And usually what it will include is you got to give feel good messages and be dynamic and, you know, messages that are pleasing to the flesh. And we have churches today that are more like country clubs. They have the, you know, the, the sports centers and the food courts and all of this. And listen, I want more people to come. But the priority should always be that we want to give the heart of the gospel, don't we? And the truth of God's word, which is not always easy to hear and it is not pleasing to the flesh. And especially we're going to see that as we go through the books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line. And so with the case with the words that Jesus is saying to the multitudes, here Jesus is saying something that is important to us that, again, that we need to consider that may not be easy to hear. Jesus saying, you need to know what it means to be a disciple of mine. You have to hate father and mother and sister and brother, even in your own life, if you're going to come after me. Now, as we look at this and consider it carefully, what does the word disciple mean? The word disciple literally means a learner. It's a disciplined one, one who is a learner, one who's desiring to learn of the things of the kingdom of the Lord. And it takes on literally the meaning of an apprentice, apprentice that hands on training is the idea here. You see that even in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was this school of prophets under Elijah and Elisha. And even with the priests, you see that David in First Chronicles, when he was drawing up the plans for the temple, he got the supplies for the temple. He divided up the priests in different divisions and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the musicians, all directed by the Spirit of God. Solomon was the one that built the temple, but it was really, when you consider it, David's temple. David got it all ready to go so that when he died, Solomon would come on the scene and he had everything ready to go. It was David that made, you know, that relationship with Hiram up in Tyre to be able to bring down cedar logs down the coast of Joppa for the building of the temple. But as David, as he would, you know, give the divisions of the priests, because the priests had grown since that time out there in the wilderness. There were many priests at that time. 24 different divisions. And instead of serving at the age of 20, they would serve from the age of 30 to the age of 50. And after you turn 50, then you would turn around and you would minister. You would train those who were 20 years old that were going to go into the priesthood. I think that's a good model. For those of us who are older that have been in ministry for a while, we have something to give to the younger generation. And that's why we have internships here at Calvary Chapel. I want to be able to pour into the younger guys, the younger people in ministry. I don't know everything about ministry, but over 25 years, I have learned a thing or two. And I want to be able to pass that on, not only what ministry is about, but listen, the heart of ministry to be able to share that with the younger generation. And so internships, maybe you've been involved with some kind of internship or apprentice you know, kind of thing um, that uh, maybe in your trade, a carpenter, an electrician, a plumber, hands-on training, working with somebody who knows the trade. Well, that's the idea here, being a disciple. And what Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, this is what it looks like if you want to come after me. 
And, and you need to hate father and mother and wife and children and brother, sister, yes, even his own life. And if you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. So you think as you winch, as you read that, you think, what is Jesus saying here? You mean I have to hate everyone, even myself, to be his disciple? He, he's not using that word hate in the way that we would think. What he is saying is this. If you want to come after me and be my disciple, then your love for me is supreme. Your love for me has priority over everyone else and everything else. Your love and devotion for him is above all others. Even mom, dad, wife, husband, those who are closest to you in your life. Listen, he is not saying that you have to hate mom and dad and hate your wife and hate your siblings and you need to you know, hate them like I hate your guts. And then you can be my disciple. That wouldn't make sense, would it? We're going to see that Jesus is going to tell his disciples in that upper room as he would say that they will know that you're my disciples by your what? Love for one another. We know that Jesus has already said that you're to love your enemies. Now, it doesn't make sense to say love your enemies, but hate those who are closest to you. So love is an overwhelming theme that we see running throughout the whole New Testament. We know that the scripture says that we are to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Matter of fact, we know that Paul would declare in the book of Romans that the law could be summed up with one word, and that is love. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, is what? Love. We know that Paul, when he's writing about the gifts of the Spirit, that he would write in 1 Corinthians 13, yet I show you a more excellent way. And if you don't have love, you have nothing. And then John, the apostle of love, he would write that, that first epistle of his. And the whole theme is that you're to love one another. And if you say that you love God and you hate your brother, then you're a liar. So what is Jesus saying here, again, as we look at it, the new Testament, given the, the commandment that we are to love one another, you see the text here is not a contradiction, but it is a comparison. And what Jesus is telling you and I is that I want all of you. I want to have preeminence in your life and in your heart. And I want you to love me supremely. And as you love the Lord supremely in your life, listen, the truth is you're going to be able to love your wife more. You're going to love your parents more. You're going to love your children more and your siblings. You're going to love others more. You see, when I explain, for example, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, to a couple that's coming in for premarital counseling or a couple that needs counseling, a married couple, and I say, husbands, you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church, it is the Lord that will do that work in you. You're to love her supremely. You're to love her unconditionally. You're to love her as Christ loves us, willing to lay down your life for her. And only the Lord can do that work in you and through you, putting that agape love, which is God's love. It's greater than a phileo love, a brotherly love. It's greater than an erotic love, a sensual love. It is God's love, loving for the sake of loving. And you see, our love for Jesus as you make him first in your life, will enhance our relationship with others, not diminish that love for others, not destroy that love for others. And Jesus will help you love others in the way you're supposed to. Again, as he works in your heart and in your life. Now, loving Jesus supremely will have a cost. 
And that will include relationships. And we're going to talk about that in just a bit as we continue. That cost will sometimes involve family members, friends, and others. Remember that Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, that do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather to bring division. Father will be divided against son and son against father and mother against daughter and so forth. And of course, some of you, you've experienced that or some of you may be experiencing that right now in your own life. You got saved. You made a commitment to Christ. You're studying the Bible. You're sharing that excitement with, you know, your family. You're sharing it with friends. And all of a sudden they say to you, well, we want nothing to do with that Jesus stuff. Quit quoting the Bible to me or to us. We're good people. You know, we're Christians. And they hold you out at arm's length. They don't want anything to do with you. And many of us, we've lost relationships and friends because we've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Our relationship with others is different, but we still love them and we pray for them and we're still a light to them. So we are to love the Lord supremely to be his disciple, number one. Put me first in your life. You can write that in your notes. And then second of all, how is it that we become his disciple? Well, verse 27, as we read it again, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says something very similar. Remember to his disciples in chapter 9 that you need to die to self, pick up your cross daily, and follow after me. Jesus didn't say you need to pick up my cross is what you need to do, or the cross. He says, what you need to do is bear your cross. You need to bear his cross. And now keep in mind that Jesus is talking about being a disciple. And in this chapter, I think that Jesus is making a distinction between salvation that comes by faith in him. We cannot earn that salvation. It's an invitation that is given to come. And recognize that you're a sinner and to receive Jesus. Now, discipleship comes by willing to count the cost and wholeheartedly follow after Jesus. Salvation comes by coming to Jesus and the cross of Calvary. Discipleship means carrying your cross and following Jesus. And we saw last week that the Father's desire is that his house should be full. But now he's talking to the multitudes. And, and he's talking to us this morning. That discipleship is something that we do not take lightly. And so whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So what does it mean to bear your cross? Sometimes people will say to me, oh, that boss that I have. You know, he's a difficult boss, but that's just the cross that I have to bear. Or they'll say, you know, something else concerning a challenge that they're facing or a difficult situation or some relationship. Now keep in mind that the cross to them was not a pretty symbol. It was not romantic. It didn't mean to them at this time that Jesus is speaking, it does to us. Somebody perhaps is wearing a cross, a piece of jewelry, and you say, that's a pretty cross, that's, that's nice. Or we come in and we see the cross here and it's something special to us, isn't it? It's a special symbol to you and to me what Jesus has done for us. As he died on that cross for you and for me, it speaks of his love. But when Jesus is speaking here, the cross spoke of death. It spoke of humiliation. It was a means of execution. It was such a terrible way to die 
that Roman citizens were not crucified. And any enemy of Rome or anyone who rebelled against Rome or defiled Rome would be crucified. And two statements were made. Number one, it was done publicly. The place of execution would be near a road where people would be coming in and out of that city, out of that village, and people would see it and it would strike fear into them that you don't dare cross Rome. You don't dare cross the emperor because this is what can happen to you. Crucifixion, excruciating is where the word crucifixion comes from, excruciating pain. Crucified victims would hang on the crosses for days. And we know that it was done publicly. And second of all, it spoke of that Rome ruled over you. So as Jesus is speaking here, to carry your cross means that you are identifying with Christ and surrender to him in humility. It is a means of death to self. And when it comes to choosing my own will and my own way or the will and the way of Christ, I choose you, Lord, And I know that none of us do that perfectly, do we? None of us. But I'm desiring to choose to die to death daily. And my life is not its own. And it belongs to you, Jesus. And I'm going to pick up my cross daily and follow after you because I am submitted to your rule in my life, Lord. And I die to self. And I put self to death. And when Jesus took that cross, listen, Rome didn't rule over Jesus. He went willingly. He went freely. Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels, he said to Peter in the garden. He could have wiped out the whole world if he wanted to, but he didn't because of his love for you because he knew that it was the only way that you and I could be forgiven and come to salvation is him going and taking on the cup of suffering and death. But when he went to the cross and he walked down that road called the Way of Sorrows to Calvary, there was one direction. There was no turning back. And following Christ, listen, picking up your cross means one direction. That I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to go back to the the old carnal ways, futility of mind. That's all done with. I'm not going to go back to the old sins, the old ways, the old hangouts, the old buddies. I want to move forward with Christ. And even as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our flesh wants to take us one direction, but Jesus wants to take us in another direction. And that's why we need to die to the flesh and die to self and follow after him. And then in verse 28, Jesus continues, for which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else... While the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. 
So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, then he cannot be my disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you love him supremely, that you follow after him wholeheartedly, and then thirdly, it means that you count the cost. If you build a tower, he says, you need to count the cost so that you can actually build that tower. Or people are going to say, he wasn't very wise. He could only build the foundation. He didn't estimate the cost. He wasn't able to finish. I have seen those who have raised their hand for Christ, who have come forward. And there seemingly seems to be a commitment initially for Christ. It's for a while. They, they seem excited and even come to church and take in some Bible study. But then over time, they end up back again with the old friends, the old hangouts, you know, drinking, partying, living carnally. And then there are those that will come to him and say, hey, weren't you that guy for a while? You were all religious. You know, you're even talking about the Bible and this Jesus stuff. You know, what's up with you, man? And it's a terrible testimony of Christ and a bad witness of Christ. When David sinned, and Nathan came and confronted him. Nathan said, you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. People began to mock. Look, count the cost. I want all of you, Jesus says. And when it comes to a battle, do I have enough troops to defeat the enemy? And we're in a spiritual battle, aren't we? The New Testament is clear about that. We're to put on the whole armor of God, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6. Timothy, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Not that you might endure hardship. You are going to endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ. So we are in a spiritual battle, and we have to count the costs. And in life, there is building, and then there is battling, isn't there? You get married. You have a family. You work. You have a business. Some of you may be going to school up at the university or college. You're beginning to work. You're, you're, you're building. You're building a tower. You're building your life. And as you build, there's going to be the battles that are going to come with it, the problems, the difficulties, the challenges, trials uh, that are going to come as you build. The world's going to come against you. The enemy's going to come against you. And that's why Jesus said earlier in this ministry that you be the wise one who hears these sayings of mine and does them. He is the one is likened to building upon the firm foundation. So when the storms come, or that is, as the storms come and beat against your life, you'll be able to stand. Don't be like the one who's foolish, who hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do it. It's likened to the one who built upon the sand. And when the battles come, the storms come, great will be to follow that house. So the question really for all of us this morning, in the honesty of our hearts, what are you building on? And when the battles come, and they do, do you have the armor of God on? Because there is an enemy that is desiring to tear down everything that you've ever built in your life. He's desiring to tear down your marriage. When it comes to your kids, your business, do you know how strong your enemy is? Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
So there needs to be a building on the Lord, a dependency to the Lord. And he's calling us to forsake all. It's the ancient Greek phrase to say goodbye to. So goodbye to self, to my own will, to my own thing. And then as we finish the chapter this morning, in verse 34, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. But men throw it out, for he who has an ear, let him hear. Early in his ministry, Jesus told his disciples that they're to be the salt of the earth. Now, we think of salt. We think of that which tastes better, don't we? I'll salt my food, and Sue may say, hey, because I'm supposed to cut back on my salt, and I just remind her that Jesus says salt is good, you know? (laughs) It's even in the red, so... Guys, try it. See what happens, all right? I believe that as Christians, we should leave a good taste with people because we're following Christ. Salt makes you thirsty. That when people see our lives and hear our words, that they would thirst for, in their souls for Christ. I remember talking to the owner of Coral, uh, who... Um, you know, work with us and putting our trip together in Israel. And uh, the last night we were there, we had a farewell dinner. And he's an amazing man, a full colonel in the IDF, a war hero. And he was telling me how he came to Christ, his testimony, and that he was invited by a Calvary Chapel pastor to, to come and on one of his trips to travel with him. And uh, he was very hesitant, but he said, on that trip, because of the Christians, because of the joy that they had, because of the peace that they had. He said, I was jealous for that. I wanted that. It left a good taste in his life, and he would come to know Christ as his personal Lord and Savior because of that testimony. You see, Paul says that we're to provoke others to jealousy. Do people look at you and say, there's something about you that I wish I had, that peace, that wisdom, that strength. And so salt is to leave a good taste in other people's lives, to to cause them to thirst for you. But you see, salt was so much more than that 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, salt would be used in the salary of a Roman soldier. They give them a little bag of salt. Salarium, where we get our word salary, where you get that phrase, you know, he's worth his salt. And they would use it to be able to put that salt on their wounds to keep the infection uh, from spreading. So it was a preservative is what it was. Maybe your grandmother said to you when you had a sore throat that you're to gargle with salt water to keep the infection from spreading. Salt would also be put on fish and meat to help preserve it longer because refrigeration wasn't, of course, available at that time. So it was valuable. Dads, are you to salt in your homes? to keep evil and corruption from coming in and spreading in your family. This church, as we spend time praying for our community, it has a real effect on our community. Can you imagine what Greeley would be like, what Colorado would be like, or our nation or the world would be like if there was no Christians? It would be awful. Darkness and evil would just spread, you know, so rapidly. Matter of fact, the Bible talks about that when Paul's writing about the coming one who will be on the scene called the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
but only he that is the Holy Spirit that is in us Christians in the church who now restrains, there's a restraining from evil just completely taking over this crazy world, will do so until he is taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. That is, the Christians are a restraining factor that when we are raptured, then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will come on the scene. But we as Christians, you know, as we pray, as we stand for righteousness, it's a preservative. It keeps corruption and evil com- from completely spreading. Again, I think that this nation would fall you know, so fast if there wasn't any Christians left. And evil and darkness would spread so rapidly. So we are a preservative. We keep corruption from completely spreading. Perhaps it might be in your workplace, here as a church in this community and other Christians. Now, our modern salt is pure, In other words, it doesn't lose its flavor. But the salt in Jesus' day wasn't that way. And it could lose its flavor. Or its ability to be a preservative. And once that happened, it wasn't any good. And the salt then was thrown down on the ground to be on the road just to be trampled on. And it was good for nothing. This is what Jesus is saying to us this morning. That discipleship is something that you don't take lightly. He's being honest with us. And he wants all of us. He wants to build with us. He wants us to be a soldier for battling his enemies. And he wants us to be salt for bettering this world. And the only way to be a disciple is you be devoted to him. Listen, don't leave this place saying, I got to be a better Christian. People say that to me all the time. I just pray for me that I'll be a better Christian. I don't want you to go away thinking, I've got to do this, and here's a list of things. Yes, we got choices to make. But here's the key, all right? Love him. Be devoted to him. And when you love somebody, then you're going to want to live for them. You're going to, to want to live for Jesus. You're going to do those things that he's calling you to do. And yes, there's going to be, there's going to be a cost. I imagine that there's going to be some that are going to be leaving the services or hearing it on live stream or even on the radio that they got decisions to make. Over the years, as we talked about a text like this and following after Jesus wholeheartedly, there are those who have come to me and said, well, uh, listen, uh, my boyfriend wouldn't like it if I left him. We're living together. They made a decision. Or, you know, the way that I'm doing business, you know, um, I'm not doing it in complete honesty or integrity or maybe an attitude or whatever the case may be. We all got decisions to make, but you love him. And you pick up your cross and you say, I want to move forward, Lord. And that means dying to self. I love you supremely over all else. And if that means making difficult decisions in your life concerning relationships or other areas of your life, Lord, you are first and I'm moving forward and there is a cost that's going to be counted. And that's how you're going to experience, listen, that abundant life that he has for you. Otherwise, it's going to be a struggle. And you're going to come up dry and empty and wondering and and all this. Lord, you are first. I follow you. The world's not going to applaud me. And I know there's going to be a cost. But the benefits are out of this world. 
And he's going to bless you in this life and the life to come. He's going to reward you greatly. And you're going to have the joy of the Lord, which is going to be your strength. And you're going to be a light to others to better this world and the people around you in your life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these words that, Lord, are very honest, very pointed, very direct. And, Lord, I pray that we would pay attention. Lord, we can't do this in our own flesh, and our own energy. It's being surrendered to you and loving you. Lord, it's making a decision to follow you. And I do pray for anybody that may be here this morning that you've never made that commitment to Jesus initially. You've never come and asked him to be your Lord and Savior for salvation and forgiveness of sin. Maybe you thought you were okay because you came to church or you belong to a church or you listen to a Bible study or your parents are Christians. Have you personally made a decision for Jesus? If you haven't done that, he is your hope and salvation. Surrender your life to Jesus. You can call out to him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is your salvation. There is none other. And you pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, I come to you, a sinner, and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. Forgive me, Lord. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. I thank you for dying for me. I believe you did for my sins. You rose again, your life speaking to my heart. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for saving me. And I want to know you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you to the family of God. But I want you to come up as one of my elders, Jim, is here as we conclude the service. Tell me the decision you made so we can pray for you and help you. But just a couple minutes. We're not quite done. Because I know a vast majority that are here this morning are Christians. And I pray that there's anything that is hindering us from wholly following after the Lord. None of us do this perfectly where we're following after the Lord. We stumble. We, we fall short. We thank you for your forgiveness. But a desire in our hearts to love you supremely, to follow you wholeheartedly, to count the cost. If there's anything in your life right now is keeping you, you know the Lord's been convicting you. Maybe in a relationship, maybe in an attitude, how you're living life. Somehow, that the Lord is saying, I want you to come and follow me. Lord, I pray you would help them to walk out of this place not grieving, but rejoicing. That they would make a decision for you, all of us, to be a light and salt to others, to follow you wholeheartedly, to die to self, and to be able to experience that abundant life that you have for us, to be truly fulfilled and satisfied, and in your presence is fullness of joy, as David would write. So, Father, do that work in us. Father, I do pray that as we go our way, that we would leave encouraged and continuing on with you. Bless us this week, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. God is good, isn't he? Would you please stand? Wednesday.